Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. One last thing before we jump into our study, though. And this is a word of warning uh, to each and every Christian uh, relating to our culture. And, and, you know, this last week, I was on some social media platforms and such, and I was, I was reading some community, uh, you know, threads and things. And one of the things that I think is super dangerous for us right now in our state is to follow the culture that wants to silence us. You think you live in a conservative state and you think that, uh, that the culture here is so conservative that they're going to stand for Christ, you're wrong. You're wrong. We're conservative now, but there's a shift happening. And look at the social platforms. Guys, take a look at the conversations that are taking place. Don't talk to me about Jesus. I don't want to talk about Jesus. You live in the Bible Belt. You know what I'm saying? It's frustrating, but people are moving in here on purpose to silence us. As the church, it's time to stand. We can no longer allow these people to silence Jesus Christ. It's frustrating to see people. If you want to be liberal, go live in New York or California. Do not come here. We cannot stand for it, guys. There's an election coming up. I'm not a political guy, but these things are important. And listen, there's people in our congregation you can talk to, Troy Freeman, you can talk to Dr. Sam about all of the election things coming up. These guys know what's going on. I want to encourage you, though, do not cower to the culture. If we do, we're going to be just like every other liberal state, folks, because liberal people are moving here on purpose. And we need to stand, and we need to have... Listen, and, and I'm not about dominion theology or kingdom theology. I'll talk about that in a minute. I, I don't think for a second that we can... Uh, you know, we're going to have a Christian government, and that's going to usher in a better Christian environment, and then Jesus is going to come back. That's not the way it's going to work, folks. But I want to tell you, we have a responsibility uh, to stand up or we will be silenced. And, uh, you know, the thing about uh, the, the culture in, in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, near the ends of the earth, was it was the same culture, but the Christians did not cease to speak up. Uh, Jesus Christ was canceled and he was crucified. And it might cost you something to do it, but I want to encourage you. This is a, this is a serious warning for every believer in this, in this state to stand strong. Because there are things coming, I believe, in our state. If we don't, if we, I believe God has, a, God has a purpose for all of it. But listen, I believe that he has given us the ability to make a statement in our state. So let's take it serious. Do, you know, it, if you're not walking with the Lord strong, you need to start. Because the battle's coming whether you want it or not. You will not escape it on this earth. So I want to encourage you with everything you got, press into Jesus, speak about Jesus, speak the name of Jesus. Don't make people listen about Jesus, but do not be afraid to mention his name. Amen? So with that said, stand with me, Revelation chapter 20. <laughs> We're going to talk about the kingdom coming to earth, and listen, there's coming a kingdom that is going to be amazing. It's called the millennial kingdom. When Jesus Christ rules and reigns on this earth, 
And that will be the easy time. Right now is the hard time. Right now we press into the Lord and we, we speak up. Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized, uh, he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and uh, reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Father, we thank you for your word that we have before us. And what an encouragement we have here, Lord. That all this, although the world is a train wreck right now, one day it will be right side up. One day you're bringing a kingdom that will restore your authority, your power, Lord, will restore. All will worship you one day. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. We long for that day, Lord. We pray that you help us to be encouraged by our text to know it's coming. And it's coming soon. We want to lift up Gabe Gotti, his family to you, Tony and Amy, Lord. We pray that you be with them as they as Gabe moves into a different phase of his life, that you protect him and guide him, Lord. May you put the fear of God in him. May you help him to remember to honor the king, just as that emblem said. We thank you, Lord, for just giving us insight and giving us discernment relating to our culture. So help us, Lord, to stand strong today, to know that there is a day coming when we will enter our rest. So encourage us, bless us in your word this morning. Come and speak to us by the power of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. How many of you are familiar with the reality TV show, Extreme Makeover Home Edition? Anybody like that show? Anybody ever seen that show? I think like three of you raise your hand, so this is going to be super applicable to everybody here. <laughs> Listen, I love that stuff. I love Ty Pennington, you know, and, and the group that back in the day anyway. I think it's changed now, but... Uh, any, you know, I love what they did. They went into a place, they reconstructed, they literally tore down an old uh, dilapidated house that needed some upgrading or whatever. And, and literally in seven days, they, they rose up a structure that was amazing. And you know how it all began, you know, Ty and the group would roll in on the bus. They'd come out at like 6 a.m. with the blowhorn. Uh, good morning, Romero family. You know, Tim, Sonia, Cruz, Silas, you know, Zoe, Jude, come on out. And these people come out all made up like they just woke up. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> Makes zero sense. But they come rushing out there like, oh, we just got up, but we knew you were coming kind of thing. And, uh, you know, and then they, they, they explain their story and all of that. And then they send them on vacation for seven days. Seven days, they're on vacation. They come back and, you know, and they... Uh, pull behind the extreme makeover bus. 
right? And we know what's behind the bus. We've followed the journey from the ground up of this new structure that exists behind it, but we haven't seen it yet either. We haven't seen what it's going to look like. We've seen parts of it. We've seen, you know, the things that they're putting into it. Not only do they resurrect an, an incredible structure, but then they furnish it with brand new things, right? And so we're standing behind the bus, and at home, we're as anticipating the reveal as the people are, and we're waiting for, for, for those famous words, bus driver, move that bus. Yes, some of you are with me. And in a moment, the crescendo happens, the music comes up in the TV, the tears start to flow, and you're at home. <laughs> this is awesome. You're caught up in the moment. Oh, was that just me? Am I the only one that does that? No, thank you. Thank you. An honest man right there. It's emotional. It's incredible because, you know, here we see people's lives changed. You know, you see all of uh, that, all this was done in seven days. Man, I, I can't help but to think about what will happen after that seven-year tribulation period when Jesus comes back and he does the exact same thing as that show does. In a, a period of seven years, the destruction the, you know, the, the demolition is taking place on earth, but when Jesus comes back, it's changed and transformed. Now we have a completely new place that we will live in on planet earth, and the environment will be totally amazing. I'm calling this message Extreme Makeover Messiah Edition, because that's exactly what we find in our text this morning. Jesus coming to an earth that needs to be reconstructed. It needs to be flipped right side up. And he does that when he comes. He's going to make this earth just like the Garden of Eden was. It's going to be paradise. We read about it last week in Isaiah chapter 11, where the wolf will dwell with the lamb. Currently today, the wolf does dwell with the lamb, but the lamb's inside the wolf. That won't happen in this culture. Everything will be set right side up. Man will, have, will, will be at peace with man. Man will be at peace with anim the animal kingdom. It will be an amazing thing. Babies will play with scorpions, and scorpions will play with babies, and they'll do it nicely to each other, you know. It's going to be an amazing place. Uh, you know, and in our text here today, there's not hardly any details about what that environment will be, but there are a couple very, very key things that we find. Thankfully, we have the rest of the Bible. That's why it's important to read the Bible from cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation, because you find all kinds of details within the text, Old Testament and New Testament. We're not just New Testament Christians. We're total biblical Christians from Genesis to Revelation. We read it all because it all relates to us. Do you know that majority of the um, information relating to the millennial kingdom is in the Old Testament? Do you know that it's through the prophet Isaiah, that it's through the prophet Ezekiel, and many other prophets that speak primarily about this thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ? We'll look at some of those details today. Um, but, but it's going to be a, an, an amazing thing. The kingdom of God is coming. It has come. It's in us. That's why we're different than the world. That's why we're going against the grain of the world, folks. But, you know, when Jesus comes back, that now his kingdom will physically be here as well, and we'll enjoy that with him. Before we get into our text, though, I want to explain um, 
something that we did in Revelation chapter 4, and I want to re-explain it to you specifically relating to the views of the millennial uh, reign, the millennial kingdom. There are four major views relating to the millennial kingdom of Christ, and listen, those views are directly related to how somebody reads the scriptures, the prophetic scriptures. It's directly related to how somebody reads the prophetic scriptures. There are only two ways that people uh, read the prophetic scriptures. They read it literally or symbolically or non-literally or allegorically. So there's a literal uh, viewing of the prophetic scriptures, meaning it says what it says and I believe what it says. And then there is the the allegorical or symbolic or non-literal way of reading the scriptures. Uh, some people com- come at the prophetic scriptures 100% completely in the non-literal, allegorical, symbolic sense. At that point, we can say whatever we want to say, folks. We have to take the Bible literally until it doesn't make sense literally. Let me give you an example. Literal or non-literal? If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Literal or non-literal? Okay, so you understand the difference. Jesus isn't teaching self-mutilation. He's saying be radical with your sin. That's symbolic. But when we read the prophetic scriptures, particularly the ones that we've been reading all the way through the book of Revelation, and we're talking about this kingdom to come, uh, you know, I believe it's literal. Everything it says is going to happen is going to happen exactly the way it says it's going to. And I don't have to understand it. I also don't have to make it fit into the culture that I live in and try and understand, you know, what are these things? We can speculate and throw out different ideas about nuclear wars and all these kinds of things, and that's fine. That's fine, but it's literal. It's a literal seven-year period, the tribulation period. How do we know? The rest of the Bible confirms that. The book of Daniel, talking about a week, the final week that's left, that's a, that's a seven-year period. You know, go back and read that, uh, uh, that prophetic word. It's throughout the Bible. Let the Bible explain the Bible. When it's literal, it'll, it'll be literal. I love what Pastor Chuck used to say about this. And we, we at Calvary Chapel read the Bible literally, unless it doesn't make sense. Pastor Chuck used to say, when the literal sense makes perfect sense, make no other sense, lest you would make what? Nonsense, Right? Because symbolically, if you read uh, scripture symbolically, um, a lot of times you can, you, you make a bunch of nonsense out of it. You know, God gave us the Holy Spirit. He's our teacher. Uh, you know, a lot of things don't have to make sense to us, but the Holy Spirit shows us the way. He gives us the truth. So we want to, we, we're going to take, you know, this at a literal sense, but I want to explain a few of these different views. The first view is the all-millennial view. They read the scriptures mainly as non-literal or allegorical. Thus, they don't ascribe to a literal millennial reign of Christ. They don't think that Jesus is coming literally to reign on the earth. They also don't believe in a literal rapture either. They don't believe any of that. Uh, they they, They do vary on how they describe the time frame of the millennial reign of Christ. Uh, According to all millennials, Floyd E. Hamilton... He said in his book, The Basis for Millennial Faith, Christ's millennial kingdom extends from Jesus' resurrection from the tomb to the time of his second coming on the clouds at the end of the age. 
on earth, Christ's kingdom is not of this world, but he reigns especially in the hearts of his people on earth for a thousand years. And that is describing the perfect, complete time between the two comings of Christ. So they simply just see it symbolically. They think we're living in the millennial kingdom now. And, and I, I just don't see it that way. It's, it's important to note that all millennials ascribe to replacement theology as well. Meaning that they believe that the Old Testament promises to Israel are fulfilled through the church. According to Kim Riddleberger, who writes in his book, A Case for All Millennialism, all millennials hold that the promises made to Israel, David, and, the, and Abraham in the Old Testament are fulfilled by Jesus Christ and his church during this present age. That's all millennialism. Similar to all millennialism is post-millennialism. Now, if these terms are not familiar with, uh, to you, you need to write them down and just read about them so you can make your own decisions about the way you see things. I'm just giving you a snapshot, and I'm sure, you know, I'm not doing, I'm not going to give a complete, you know, description of every position. I'm just giving you the snapshot of these things. Postmillennialism, it's similar to all-millennialism in the way that they read the scriptures, non-literal and allegorical. Postmillennialist Norman Shepard defines this as the view that Christ will return at the end of an extended period of righteousness and prosperity defined as the millennium. So they also don't believe in a literal millennial reign of Christ, a thousand years where Jesus sits on a throne physically on this earth. Uh, they, they believe it is post-era. You know, the millennium is, is, a, is an era, not necessarily uh, a, a literal thousand years. So it's just some time period, but, but Jesus will come after the millennium, after that completed period of time. They also do not ascribe to a rapture and ascribe to re- replacement theology. They also hold to the view that the world will get better and better and then Christ will come. Remember I was talking about dominion theology or kingdom theology, which is making a huge surface in, our, in, in eschatology, uh, the study of end times in our culture today where people believe, oh no, it's not going to get worse, it's going to get better. And in fact, and once we get the, the earth prepared for Jesus, once we've done our job and we go into the world and we make it a better place, then Jesus will come back. So we're in control of when it happens, so would you do your job? Um, Thomas Ice, who is a premillennialist, he said, he said the postmillennialists see the current age as the kingdom of God. However, they see the reign of Christ not just in the hearts of believers today, but as impacting society. Postmills believe that since the kingdom was established at Christ's first coming, it is currently being expanded through the preaching of the gospel until an overwhelming majority, though not all, will be converted to Christ. Such gospel success will create a climate of reception to the things of Christ, like his mediated rule through the church of all the world. So post-millennials, again, they believe that the the world's going to get better and better, and once the world is set at a a certain number of converts in the world, then Christ will come back. Post-millennialist David Chilton said, all millennialism and post-millennialism are the same thing. The only fundamental difference is that post-mills believe the world will be converted and all mills don't. Otherwise, David Chilton says, I'm an all millennial. Got it? Finally, we have two positions relating to a a similar belief, and that is premillennialism. There is both classical 
premillennialism, and then pre-tribulational premillennialism. Both interpret the prophetic scriptures literally when it makes sense to do so. And they believe, as John Wolvord put it, the second coming of Christ will occur before his literal reign of 1,000 years on earth. So they both see it as literal, although they vary in the way that they see uh, different things uh, relating to the rapture and those kinds of things. They all, all premillennials believe the same thing, that Christ will come before the millennial, pre-millennialism. So before the millennium. So Jesus will come back at the end of the tribulation period prior to a literal 1,000-year reign on earth. Most uh, premillennialists in this day and age are what are called dispensational. They see the world as God working through epochs or ages throughout, uh, you know, specifically there's, there's, there's a different number. People see it differently, but... Um, you know, seven or eight different eras that God has reached down to man. And you can look through that, just look it up, dispensationalism, you can read about those positions and such. But most uh, premillennialists see it that way, so they think the church age is a specific age of grace, where Jesus has come, you know, the church has been deployed in the world, God is dispensing grace on this earth, and there will come a time when that grace door will close, and then judgment will come. And that, that, some people see it as the end of the church age. Some, some see it as a, a, the start of a new age. So there's that kind of idea. Most of the, the premillennialists are pre, pre, pre-trib rapturists. Uh, they see that the rapture will happen prior to the tribulation period. They vary on how they see Israel. But for the most part, they see Israel and the church as two separate entities and God having two separate programs. Although we're all one, two separate programs. One for Israel, one for the church. So they're distinct. We believe, we see it that way. We think that the seven-year tribulation period is specific to Israel. That's why we don't believe the church will be there. Because God has removed the church out of the world and he's focused on Israel. Right now, God is not focused on Israel. He's focused on us. And we're deploying the gospel into the world. But in the the tribulation period, you, from Revelation 4 all the way through 19, all you see is God speaking about the children of Israel. You see him speaking about the things that he's doing through the 144,000 sealed saints of Israel. Those are not symbolic. That is literal. So, anyway, uh, Thomas Ice said that premillennialists see the present era as the church age. That is a separate and distinct work is God's plan from that of Israel. Christ's redemptive work is the only basis for salvation regardless of the period of time a believer lives under. Uh, a believer lives under. So, premillennialists believe that salvation, no matter what era you lived, was by grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ, Old Testament and New Testament. The, the, the children of Israel, they got saved by grace through faith in the coming Messiah. They were looking forward to the coming Messiah. They had the prophetic word. They could believe in it by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We are, are a believe, a salvation comes the same way for us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But we're looking backward. Because Jesus has come. You see how that works. It all points to Jesus. 
And when you see that that is the red line through the entire scripture, there is one hero and his name is Jesus. Both Old Covenant and New Covenant point to Jesus. It's an amazing thing. And then the scriptures make sense. They don't make sense if there's other ways of salvation because then it contradicts itself. But when we see salvation coming through one mediator, his name Jesus Christ, and you understand that the Old Testament saints, whether they were under the, um, you know, the feasts and the law and the temple sacrifice and all of that, that that all pointed to Jesus. And their faith was not in the system, but in the coming one that would make, would take away the sins of the world. They understood that their sins were covered that atonement was made just so they could be in relationship with God until Jesus came to take their sins away. That's why they could not go directly to heaven when they died as Old Testament saints believing in the coming Messiah. They went to Abraham's bosom. We talked about that last week. If you missed it, check it out. But the point is, when Jesus Christ died, the sins of the world were stripped, you know, for those who believed in Jesus, they were, they were washed white as snow, and they went directly to heaven after that. Jesus took captivity captive. He led those who were in Abraham's bosom directly to heaven to be with him forever and ever. Is this making sense? This is awesome stuff. So, you know, premillennialism, again, there's different views of it. Uh, I teach the Bible, listen, listen to this carefully, from a dispensational, pre-tribulational, premillennial viewpoint. You got that? That's how I church, that's how I'm teaching through the book of Revelation. So, and it might rub some people wrong. It's okay. We don't have to agree on all of these things. That, I just really take the Bible literally, unless it doesn't make sense to do so. And, you know, uh, you might take it differently, and that's fine. You know, we, we can have those in, uh, encouraging uh, conversations about those things, but we ought not let them divide. You know, so, you know, if you're an all-millennialist or you're a post-millennialist, I'll pray for you. No, I'm just kidding. But if you are, you know, well, well that's fine. It's okay. It's okay. We'll all see it one day. We will all stand before the Lord. Let's not get distracted. And this is what I think the devil's done in the church is he's distracted us with these little conversations we want to have to make everybody feel like we know what we're talking about rather than telling people about Jesus, which is really why we're here. We're not to discuss theology. I mean, we're not here primarily to discuss theology amongst ourselves. We're here to take the gospel into the world for dying people that need to know about Jesus. That's why we exist. So I'm not saying don't have those conversations. I'm not over, you know, saying like, hey, you know, you know don't, don't, don't argue with other Christians about things. Don't argue with other Christians. Yeah, you, I am saying that actually, but don't say that. Don't argue with people. You hold to your belief and believe what you believe because you see it in Scripture. Make sure that you can defend yourself in Scripture. And then, hey, if you see it differently than somebody else, then praise the Lord. High five each other and we'll say, hey, I'm gonna, I'll see you. Hey, we all see you in heaven. I'm going to come look for you. I'm going to say, see, I was right, you know. <laughs> so this is how I teach it. I'm going to teach Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, literally. I'm going to teach it as future. It hasn't happened yet, you know, and, and that's how I'm going to see it. Let me give you a timeline of the way, that, uh, the way that I've taught the book of Revelation so far. I teach that the rapture of the church occurs prior to the seven-year tribulation period. Then there's that seven-year period of judgment upon the earth, at the end of which Jesus will return. 
When he returns, he's going to institute a literal millennial reign for 1,000 years. Jesus is going to sit on a physical throne in Jerusalem, and he is going to judge the world from a throne. With, he's going to judge with a rod of iron, meaning that he's, it's going to be a no-nonsense theocracy where he judges sin immediately. You know, and, and so I, I, don't, I, I have to be honest, I don't know how that all works. I don't know exactly how that looks. That's just what the Bible says. You know, so that is what will happen after the thousand-year reign, which we're going to look at today. We're going to look at the entire thousand years in six verses. And then after that, uh, you know, what we, find, we see is a final judgment against the nations of the world. Satan is bound at the beginning of the thousand-year reign. He's loosed at the end of the thousand-year reign. For 1,000 years, there's no Satan on earth. But at the end of that thousand-year period, what's going to happen is uh, God is going to allow Satan to come and tempt the world, to deceive the nations, to deceive the nations for one last time. And then he is going to, he's going to grab Satan and the demons, throw them into the lake of fire. He's going to judge all the unbelievers in the world at the great white throne judgment, then he's going to create a new heavens and a new earth where the new Jerusalem will come down and we will reside with him forever and ever in the new Jerusalem. That's the way that I see it. So let's start. There's two things I want to point out today in uh, relating to the Messiah edition of life on earth during the thousand-year reign. First, we find the establishment of the millennial kingdom uh, we find Satan being removed, the removal of Satan. Look at verse 1 again there with me. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So here's an interesting thing. This is a little Satanology for you, a little study of Satan. Satan is not the equal of God. Not even by any stretch of the imagination is Satan the equal of God. But Satan has deceived even Christians in the world today to tremble at his name. There's one name we tremble at, and it's not Satan. He's a created being. That's why, you know, when we, when we read about, that's why God inserted 1 John 4, 4, I'm certain of it. Greater is he who is in, the, than, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. What it's saying is God is greater than Satan. And maybe you're here this morning and you're like, man, I don't know about that. You know how I know that's in some, of, some people's minds here today? Because that was me one day. When I first got saved, and I thought I was afraid of Satan. I had grown up under some Jehovah Witness theology. My mom was a Jehovah Witness. And, uh, you know, she taught us all kinds of crazy things about fearing the devil. I don't know why. She just did. You know, we, we, were, we were taught that if anybody spoke in tongues, that's the language of the devil. We were taught to fear the devil and around every corner. He's there waiting for us. And so I grew up with a fear of the devil. When I got saved, I didn't have the theology to back up, you know, stripping that fear away. And so there was a period of time in my walk with the Lord where I walked in fear of the devil. And 
this is going to sound crazy, but I kept a little sin in my life just so uh, the devil wouldn't mess with me because I feared him. Does that make any sense? makes zero sense, but that's, that's, that's us. And you know, isn't God gracious to let us work through these things? You know, we don't get just, uh, when we get saved, we don't just get a theological download. It would be awesome if we did, you know, but we don't. We, we learn practically through studying the scriptures. So as I studied and studied and studied, I realized, um, you know, Satan has, has, he has power, but not in comparison to God. He has no power. When you understand the gospel, what Jesus has done for us, he strips Satan of his power. He, he's, he is a roaring lion seeking those whom to devour, but he's a toothless lion relating to the Christian. Because we overcome by the blood of the lamb. We don't have to fear the dark side, folks. We don't have to fear it. What's the worst that the devil can do? Kill you? Guess what? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Do it! You know what I'm saying? I'm ready to go home. Go for it. You know, so here's the reality. Um, we, 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 we want to understand this, though. Satan is powerful. There's no question about it. But he's not, as power, he's not near as powerful as our God. And so we stand in confidence and courage and boldness in our world today because he is out there deceiving people. And the deception is real. But he's not greater than than, uh, than the Lord himself. We see that in our text right here. When we read about this angel who is not Jesus, this is a literal angel who is a messenger from God. Notice, three times in the book of Revelation, uh, if it was a mighty angel, it says mighty angel. This says an angel. I like that, and I'll tell you why in a second. This is just a common angel. A common angel that's coming down from heaven, meaning this angelic host is being sent from God. That's the key phrase. He's being sent from God to this earth in the authority of God with a key that he's been given to the bottomless pit and with a great chain that he will bind the enemy and then he will put him in the bottomless pit or the abyss for 1,000 years. Many commentators come at this passage like this. This is obviously speaking of Mark, Michael the archangel. He comes down and he binds the enemy. You know what I think? This is literally the runt of the litter of angels in heaven. That's what I think. I think God said, who's the weakest guy we got? You know, who, who's the weakest angel we have? And I think Satan trembles when he comes. Why? Not because of the presence of the angel. It wouldn't matter if it was, it was Michael or anybody else. The key here is where they're coming from. They're coming from heaven. They're coming in the authority of God. Even angelic hosts, although they are powerful, they are limited in their power according to what God allows them to have. And he's the one that gives them the power. They're, they're, this, they have, they're subject to, just like you and I are, to the power that God allows in our lives. But oftentimes we limit that by not believing God. Angels believe God. They're in the presence of God. They see God. So they come in the authority that they've been given. Many of us do not operate in the authority that we've been given in Christ because we don't understand it. Listen, when you understand that the authority of Christ is not about you at all, about your limitations, about your abilities and all these kinds of things, and you understand that it's all about him and him giving you whatever authority and power you need to do your job, now you've got it right. That's why I don't think this is Michael. 
I think this is just some random runt angel in heaven coming to, to bind the enemy. He's coming down in power because he's coming from God. He's been sent by God. He's coming in the authority of God. And he's coming with a key. Where do you get the key? He's not the holder of the key. God's the holder of the key. He's given the key from God, and, he's, and the key relate, relates to the bottomless pit. Do you guys know what that place is? It's mentioned in Scripture. It's the place where you remember the legion of angels in Luke chapter 8, verses 26 through 33, uh, where they did not want to go. Here's what it says there in Luke chapter 8, verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and, and be driven by the demons into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons have entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. That is, circle that in your Bible, the bottomless pit. That's the same place that this angel is going to take Satan. And it says, now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these, so he gave them permission. Key word, permission. Jesus is 100% in control of all of this here. Even though he's clothed in the, in the flesh here, even though he's operating by the Holy Spirit, he's 100% in control, which should say something to you and I today about the demonic realm and about the authority we have in Christ. We don't command, uh, you know, we don't command uh, demons to do this and that. We come in the name of the Lord. It was Michael, by the way, in the book of Titus that says, the Lord rebuke you. Or maybe it was Jude, actually. Um, but I didn't look that up, so look that up for me. Um, but, but the point of it is, then it says here that then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. This is, is the first case of suicide. Suicide. So, and also deviled ham. So, the bottomless pit is the abyss. Listen, <laughs> Demons do not want to go here. They do not want to go here. Satan uh, is going to be bound with a great chain. What does that chain look like? Maybe it's the smallest chain that exists in the world. Because again, he's being bound by who? God. It's the authority of God here. God doesn't even need a leash to do it, folks. But he does. He, there's, a, there's a great chain. It's a chain uh, that he's bound with there for a thousand years. Listen, the world will be rid uh, in this moment, not of sin, but we, we, uh, it will be relieved of any demonic deception. Right now, what we see in our world today, all the things that are going on, is total deception. Total deception. Listen, when 
the truth looks like a lie and the lie looks like a truth, that's called deception. The enemy doesn't make us sin. He tempts us through what? Deception. The, Satan is the great deceiver. And he can literally pull the wool over anybody's eyes if they're not careful, including yours. What did Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. He can use anybody. He's so deceptive. And he's so good at his job. We'll see that at the end of the thousand-year reign when he's released and he sways, the, he sways, listen, not just a few people, the nations. He sways the nations through deception to walk away from Jesus. To walk away from the, 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 the literal reign of Christ that they've just sat under for a thousand years. It's amazing. He's good at his job. That's why we have to have spiritual lenses on all the time. And we have to measure everything that we're thinking, everything that we're doing against the word of God because it's the truth. It will show us what's right and what's wrong. So we have to be careful about not allowing the enemy to, to deceive us. But he is deceiving the nations now and he will deceive the nations at the end of the thousand year reign, but there will be this period of time for 1,000 years where Satan is not on earth. He will not exist. He will be bound and, uh, and he will not be allowed to deceive the world. This leads us to the second element of the messianic edition of life on earth during the millennial kingdom. It's the reign of the saints with Christ. Look at verse four. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image or not received the mark on its forehead, on their foreheads or their hands. They, speaking of the ones that were beheaded, came to life and reigned uh, with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So now John sees that we have thrones on earth, plural. Thrones. Not just a throne, but there's thrones. And he says, he sees those who are seated on them have authority to judge. This is a subordinate authority. Again, I talked about it last week. We're, we're, you know, we're coming to rule and reign with Christ, not with absolute authority, but subordinate authority. In other words, Jesus is the authority, and we're under him. And we do what he says when he says exactly how he says to do it. And we operate in the spirit of Christ, literally. And we will be glorified at that point, and I'll explain in a second. But, but who are these people here that are seated on these thrones? We, is, we, we believe it's us. I've taught it already, you know, and, and there's scripture to back that up. I'll show you in a second. But let's back up. This is speaking, first and foremost, of the Old Testament saints. And we know this because the, the prophecy was given to Daniel in Daniel chapter 7, verse 27, which says... And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole earth shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. He's speaking to the, about the children of Israel. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominion shall serve and obey him. Every Old Testament believer who was looking forward to the coming of Christ will also be coming with Christ 
at his second coming, and they will be seated on the throne. This also includes the 12 apostles. Jesus said, Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, uh, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So we have the, the apostles, the Old Testament saints, the apostles now coming. Not only that, but also all believers, all, all in the church are included. Revelation chapter 2, verses 26 and 27. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Jesus is saying that those who come through the blood of the Lamb, we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, we as the church come that way. We're coming with Jesus to rule and reign. Not only that, but there's a fourth group. And it says it right in our text, those who had been beheaded for the testimony in Jesus and for the word of God in the tribulation period. Look at the, the last set, uh, portion of chapter, uh, verse 4 there. It's speaking about the tribulation martyrs. They'd been beheaded. Literally, their heads had been cut off. That, with an axe is what the, the technical term there means. Chopped off for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God. It says they will be resurrected from the dead. And then it says that's the first resurrection. And this resurrection is known as the believer's resurrection. Now, here's the, the idea of the first resurrection here in single tense argues very, very well for a post-tribulation rapturist. So somebody who believes that the rapture is going to happen at the end. They argue, well, this says the first, tribulation, the first resurrection happens here, so it's obvious that the rapture doesn't happen. Listen, post-tribulation rapture is no rapture. It's not a rapture. Jesus is coming back. He's here. This happens post-Christ standing on earth. Jesus is on earth, and then the first resurrection happens. So here's the thing is, what does that term mean, first resurrection? Is it talking about a singular event, or is it talking about, uh, you know, uh, sections or waves of a, a resurrection, a period of time of resurrection? I suggest to you that it does speak about a period of time, not just a singular event. Why? What about Jesus? He's the first resurrection. He's the first bodily resurrected. Wouldn't it, if it's, we're talking literally about a first resurrection, Jesus then is in a first resurrection? What does that mean? He's the first fruits of us. So it can't be speaking about a singular event purely through the resurrection of Christ. But not only that, but then you couple that with, with uh, the, the first resurrection of the righteous, you know, in, in the second wave of resurrection, which is the rapture of the church. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 through 17 says the dead in Christ will rise first. This is those who have passed away when the rapture happens. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we, Paul including himself in that, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And, and so, you know, what happens when we die today? Paul tells us to be absent from the body is what? To be present with the Lord. 
So when we die, we leave our bodies here on earth. We're not bodily resurrected when we die. We go to be with the Lord. What does that look like? I don't know. I have no idea. Are we disembodied spirits? I don't know. We probably have a body of some sort. Here's what I do know, in, you know for the fact, because the scripture says so, is when Jesus comes, everybody who's died prior to the rapture is coming back with Jesus and is going to be bodily resurrected. Why is bodily resurrection important? Because Jesus was bodily resurrected. And Jesus overcame. You know, the idea of us getting our new bodies and stuff, listen, it's going to be your body, but it will be changed. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, or 15, verses 51 through 55. Your body will be, will be Jesus' body was his body. There was no body left. It was just a changed body, changed and transformed. You know, so uh, it will be a glorified body. The body that you have will be glorified. Well, what happens if I'm cremated? Can God not overcome those things? I don't, I don't know. He created the world with his words. I think he could probably make your body materialize if he wanted to. But, but you're, you're going to be bodily resurrected. And then you'll be with the Lord. You'll be a changed body, be changed and transformed. Is, is Mike going to look like Mike? I don't know. I think so. I think I'll know Mike. But Mike's going to have a, an awesome glorified body. You know, not that your body's not bad. You know, I mean, I'm just, oh, look at his wife's like, hey. <laughs> and you won't be married. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, man. But, honey, I love you, so. You know. But, but. So what's going to happen at the rapture? This is why it's important. Jesus was resurrected already. If it's post-trib rapture, I don't know. I don't think that's a rapture. But if that's what that's speaking about, uh, you know, then 1 Thessalonians 16 doesn't happen until post-trib, which does not make sense at all. So I see this as the second wave, the, the rapture of the church, the second wave of this first resurrection. And then the third wave of that resurrection is here, in our text, where those who were beheaded, those who had died in the tribulation period, are, are bodily resurrected in the millennial kingdom. That's right after the tribulation. Uh, you know, Jesus, there's that resurrection uh, from the dead for them. And, and notice it says that they will be priests of God and Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So all of those people collectively will be reigning and ruling with Christ during the thousand-year reign of Christ. It talks about here something else that we need to understand, and that is the second death. He, he, Paul, uh, John says here that um, in verse 6, uh, over such the second death has no power. Over such the second death has no power. And Josh and I were just talking about this the other day, that you know, in the Garden of Eden, when God told Adam... Uh, the, the enemy tempted him, right? Deceived them. Did God really say that you'll die if you eat of this tree? And they're like, did he? Is that what he meant? You know? And they're like, well, maybe not. Let's try it out. So immediately when they died, they di immediately when they ate of the fruit, they died. They died spiritually, immediately separated from God. There was a spiritual death. That's one component of death that God was speaking about there. There's really kind of two components. There is a... A, a spiritual death that happens, and then there is a physical death that happens. Did they die physically? Yeah. But they died spiritually immediately. 
And you know what? They were, at that point in time, they were destined for separation from God. So they were destined for the second death, which is eternal death, forever and ever, because of sin. So you and I, as we sit, we, we were born into this idea that there's two deaths that we will die. There is a physical death that we will die one day because of sin. Our bodies are sinful and we're going to die one day. That's why diseases happen and all of the things that happen in the world to our bodies, that's why we don't live long. Because we, we're under the curse. And the wages of sin is what? Death. So uh, there's the physical death. But, but then we have an opportunity to gain eternal life. We have an opportunity to cut off the second death, which is eternal death. So through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have the ability to, to give life and that more abundantly and cut off the second death. That's what it's talking about here. The second death is for unbelievers. The second death, the, the, that is speaking of hellfire, eternal death forever and ever, where you die, but you're never dead. Where you die, but you're never dead. That's what it is. And that's what he's talking about here. Those who are in Christ will never experience that. You'll, you'll experience death one time if you're not raptured. You will experience death one time and that's it. And here's what I know is that, uh, you know, when we experience that, uh, that it, it will be, Jesus will be a, with us through it and that he will walk us through it. You know, you, many of you have been with people who have died, you know, your loved ones and such, and, and you know, you, you've had experiences where you, you've seen, they've seen the Lord or they've seen some spiritual thing that's happening if they're believers and, and such, and, and you, you know that to be true. Jesus is with us through our death. That's why it's so important. If you're not with Jesus, you want to be because you will experience two deaths at that point. You will die physically. You will be resurrected for the great, great white throne judgment for the great, the great white. <laughs> you're going to be resurrected for the great white throne judgment. And then you will experience the second death. God doesn't want that for you. He wants you to have life and that more abundantly. Before we close, I just want to, I'm going to give you some scriptures that I want you to look up because we don't have time to look at them today. But relating to the millennial kingdom, what is the environment going to look like? Here's some key things that I wrote down for us today. The millennial kingdom, first and foremost, will be filled with perfect peace. There will be perfect peace on earth. Jesus is the prince of peace. When his kingdom comes, it will be a kingdom of peace. For 1,000 years, there will be perfect peace on earth. And you can look up Micah 4 and Isaiah 66 for references. Not only that, but we will, the, the human life will be expanded. So, you know, when you're reading in, in uh, Genesis and such, you know how they were living for, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years, 800 years, you know, whatever, 900 years, that, that kind of thing. There's going to be extension of life, of human life, because Jesus is ruling and reigning on earth. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 20. Not only that, but there'll be harmony with mankind and, and the animals, as I talked about. Isaiah 11, verses 6 through 8. It will be a holy culture. You won't wonder what holiness looks like because you'll be living in holiness. You'll see what holiness looks like. You'll see what a holy culture looks like. Isaiah 35, verse 8. Everyone will worship Jesus in this culture. For a thousand years, everyone will worship the Lord. Isaiah 66, verse 23. 
And not only that, but there will be a fully functioning temple in the millennial reign of Christ that will reveal how it all relates to Jesus. You know, in Ezekiel chapter 40, verses 40, uh, chapters 40 through 45. And not only that, then chapter 46 and on through the end of the book of Ezekiel, talk about how the feasts will also be integrated back into the millennial kingdom. And we will be able to relate it all to Jesus at one point. You know, in, in the millennial kingdom, we'll see how all of this relates to Jesus. Man, I can't wait to see this stuff. This is amazing. Why is God telling us this? Because he wants us to be looking forward to what he, what's coming. He wants us to stay encouraged. Uh, he knew where the world was headed after the fall of man, folks. He knew the chaos. He knew the deception. He knew the darkness that would exist in our world today. And he has taken steps to reach us. You know, and, and mainly the, the one step that he took was sent Jesus here on earth. He's our hope to, to help us to be able to experience the, all of that we've talked about here in the millennial kingdom. To experience freedom from our sin. To experience, you know, reconciliation to a holy God. To, to be in and, and, and have peace on earth even right now in our hearts. Even through our tribulations and such. But there's a, there's a time coming. There's a day coming when, when uh, Jesus will rule and reign on earth. And it's going to be an, an, an incredible environment. So don't lose heart. I know it's difficult looking around today, but... We have to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. He's coming back just like he said he was going to. He's going to institute a, 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 a world that is so opposite of what we live in today. And you're going to be with him if you're in right relationship with him. So stay encouraged. Speak up. So many people are perishing daily that maybe by their own volition they didn't hear. They heard the Lord. And they heard about Jesus and they rejected him. But, but you know what? What we can do is remind people. God will give everybody an opportunity. And he's given your loved ones opportunities. And he's going to continue to do that because he loves people. So be encouraged. Stay true to the Lord. And look at what's coming for us. Cannot wait. Amen. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for just this time together and Bible study. God, we pray as we close today that you would encourage those who are discouraged here this morning. Maybe discouraged because of some trip, trial or some circumstance in their lives today that is just, just weighing heavy on them. Lord, will you encourage us with the future? This too shall pass, your word says. We will not experience these things forever and ever. This is, this is short. This life is so short. These circumstances are short. If we have the right view, the right perspective, will you help us this morning? to keep the right perspective, Lord? Will you help us to be reminded that uh, Jesus is coming soon? And when he comes, he's going to institute uh, a right-side-up world, which is going to be amazing to be a part of. Until he comes, Lord, may we be who we're called to be in these last days. Fill us with your spirit, Lord. Encourage us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.